Welcome to VCR, a vintage cinema rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Blake. I'm Michael. And this is the deep dive, spoilerful discussion of one of the greatest movies of all time, yeah. The Princess Bride. I've been waiting a couple weeks to do this deep dive with you, because yeah. I have a lot to say. So do I, actually. And if you haven't seen this movie before, if you're one of the very few people... Don't let us spoil this movie. Go check out the Primer episode last week. I wish that I could rewatch this movie for the first time, but also I am so happy that this is like my 30th or 50th time watching this movie. Yeah, it's one of those movies that gets better with age, too. It really does. It really does. And you just pick up more as you go. Like, this movie, the writing, the screenplay of this film, and I actually want to ask you about that later, about the story that this is based on. Every character is just like bleeding personality yeah and, and there's so much depth to every character that if you watch this film and just focus on one character in in your watch i think you're gonna learn a lot about that character and their motivations and and just how well written this is yeah absolutely i mean this is by william goldman who is one of the greatest screenwriters of the 20th century yeah yeah i guess where i want to start in this discussion just getting out of the way the framing device of the film and talking about the Fred Savage having Grandpa read The Princess Bride to Grandson and and how that's utilized throughout the film. Mm -hmm. So it opens with him being sick and and Grandpa comes and, you know, Grandpa and Grandson. I don't know, Grandpa's trying almost too hard to connect with grandson yeah and grandson's not really into it at first yeah he's just kind of like all right i'll try to stay awake yeah and so he's like trying to sell him on reading this book that his he says his grandfather read to him as a kid and then he read to his dad yeah exactly he's gonna read it to him yeah and so it's this like family heirloom that's been passed on from generation to generation Hmm. what i what i really like about this framing device it's used throughout the film, and there's voiceover moments, there's moments where we cut back to it, and what I think it does a really good job of doing is, like you said in the Primer episode, this is a very quirky movie, Yeah. and the tone of this film shifts several times as we get through it. Like There are moments where it gets very serious, and every time that it gets very serious is when we cut back back to yeah. the bedroom. I think one of my favorites is when um Buttercup is about to be eaten by like the man-eating eels. Right. And then we smash cut back to Grandpa and Grandson and Grandpa's just like she doesn't get eaten. Yeah. And he's like, "What?" <laughs> and he's like, "You just you looked very concerned. I yeah. just wanted you to know she doesn't get eaten." He's like, "Well, I wasn't like worried. I was just a little concerned. That's different." <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. And and so it's that moment like and that's very early on and it also is kind of like a fourth wall break almost to the audience right? yeah and, and it where it's like every time the movie gets almost like fringes on being too serious it's kind of like let's take a step back don't forget that this is just a story this is a story that grandfather is reading to his grandson yeah right yeah and and so every time it, it verges on the point of getting serious like there's that hard break where it, we kind of like get back we reset and we get back into like into the fun part of the film again. Like, yeah. every time it verges on, like, becoming too much of a drama, it's like, no, reset. Nope. We're getting right back to it. And that's a really effective way to tell a story, I think. Yeah, and it works for a comedy, right? Like, the, yeah. like I said earlier, this wouldn't work... If this was, like, a gritty, serious drama, that would just completely 
throw all the tension out the window. Well, what you would do instead, I think, is you would make that be the comedic relief, right? Whereas, right. whereas this is just like it, it's again, it's the hard reset. We're getting we're getting too serious here. We need to pull the audience back again. Right. Well, I'm saying it's like if this was a serious movie. It wouldn't work, but this isn't a serious movie. Yeah, but when I, I on the flip side, what I'm saying though is you'd almost have to use it as comic relief if you were to try to do it in something serious. Yeah. Whereas this isn't comic relief; it's almost like I said, just a hard reset. Mm. Yeah, that's true. So I, I think that's a really effective framing device, and it's also really cool because of the origins of the Princess Bride being a, a story, a novel, and connecting it to that as well. Mm. So just no notes like the absolute perfection like this is actually something that i would i would recommend writers take note of this because i think this is a really cool way to tell a story i think one of my favorite moments is when something really bad happens well, i guess this is a spoiler i can yeah, just say it. talk whatever you want like when wesley dies and the grandson kind of like throws a fit he's like jesus christ grandpa what are you reading me and <laughs> yeah. then the grandpa's just like you seem very upset perhaps we should continue this another time <laughs> he's just like no no like let's oh, i'm sorry like keep reading <laughs> right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was really funny it's, it's moments like that that just again remind us that this is a story that just sit down relax like let the movie play out like don't you don't need to get upset like it's a, it's a movie. It's a Hollywood film. Like, it's a, it's, yeah. And I think that calm down. <laughs> I think that this is something that's actually changed somewhat in modern audiences. And you know, I I know Jess does this, and I know some other of my friends' girlfriends do this. Where if we're watching something like overly dramatic or very serious, they'll read ahead and oh. read spoilers of things. And I think that this is a really effective film. And then again, it's saying like, hey. Let us tell the story. <laughs> yeah, relax. Relax. Yeah. Let us tell the story. Let just let let the pieces fall where they may and enjoy this for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that again, that's that's my analysis of of how they used that as as a framing device and why I think that's very effective. Well, it is a very interesting like distancing effect, right? Right. Cuz you're right. It is kind of like hey, it's like hey, like this is a story like relax like don't take it too seriously like it really suits kind of like you know there's that scene later in the movie when they're trying to storm the castle and they're like oh if only we had a flame cloak and Fezzik just whips one out of his uh, shirt and it's I saw that and I raised an eyebrow and I was like in any other movie I would dock you points for that but because this movie is like established as being kind of silly I'm like okay yeah yeah yeah. he just has a flame cloak just randomly (laughs) (laughs) I mean they kind of hand wave it he's like oh it's he got it from the Brute Squad, which he was temporarily No, he by. got it from Matt Miracle Max. Right, he... Miracle Max just... But that's even sillier, because why would Miracle Max have a flame cloak <laughs> that fits just, him? Yeah. He was like, oh, he's like, oh, Miracle Max gave it to me because it fit me. And yeah. like, he was like, deciding to let me keep it. Or like how the, even how they resurrect Wesley, where they're like, he's not dead, he's only mostly dead. <laughs> Two blades. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Like, yeah, again, it's it's the reminders that this is just a yeah, story. Yeah, and this is what I was trying to say. Like, if this was a more gritty, serious movie, you'd be like, wait, what the hell? But because it's this movie, I'm just like, okay, like, sure, why not? Yeah, exactly. I and One of my favorite moments is when they're storming the castle and they reach uh, the sergeant, like, give us the gate key. He's like, I have no gate key. And they're like, Fezzik, rip his arms off. He's like, oh, you mean this gate key? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Where do you want to now talk about this movie? Like, do you want me to get into the book a little? Because the book is... Yeah, let's do our comparison like, and, and talk about like the scenes and, and how the book kind of 
how this maybe adds to the book or takes away from the book. Well, or like I want to I want to talk about the framing device because the book has a very similar, interesting framing device. Okay. So, first of all, like this is the opening line of the book, and it's one of the best opening lines I've ever seen. Okay. This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. <laughs> so the whole premise is um, William Goldman wrote this book, right? Yep. And it opens with kind of this metafictional conceit where it's William Goldman recounting how in his own childhood he became sick with pneumonia. And like as a kid, he was into sports and he didn't like reading and he wasn't very good at it. But then when he was 10, he got laid up with pneumonia and his father came in and read him The Princess Bride. He read him, and this is kind of hard to explain, but bear with me. The book, the actual Princess Bride was authored by a guy named S. Morgenstern from a country named Florin. Mm. But it's it's fictional. Yeah. It didn't happen, right? And it's funny because you still see people today who read the book and they believe that Florin is a real country. Right. <laughs> and that it was actually written by a guy named S. Morgenstern. So... William Goldman's father read him this book, and that's what kindled his love of reading. That's what changed his life. That's what made him become a writer, right? Right. So then we flash forward to like 40 years, and William Goldman is, his own son is turning 10, and William Goldman is out of town working on a screenplay, but he gets on the phone, and he basically like moves heaven and earth to find an original copy of The Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern and gets it to his son for his birthday. Right. So his son reads the first chapter and then puts it down because it was he got bored. Right. And William Goldman was heartbroken by this until he picked up the book. And what's interesting is that he never actually read the book himself. His dad just read it to him. Right. And his dad read it to him multiple times over the years. Yeah. So he opened up and he realized that his son was right. The book was boring. And it turns out that it was like, 40% swashbuckling adventure and 60% like political satire. Right. And that's what screwed it up. So that's where the line, this is my favorite book in the whole world, though I have never read it. So William Goldman realized that like there was good stuff in here. It's just surrounded by all this like junk. Yeah. So he decided, he went to his publisher and decided to make an abridged version where he would cut out the like dry political stuff and just keep the swashbuckling adventure stuff. Right. And then we get into the story as a whole. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is like, they keep the frame story where you've got the princess bride and then every now and then William Goldman himself will intrude and just be like me again. And he'll explain like why he cut certain things or like what he's omitting, stuff like that. Okay. You've got that like, and then occasionally it'll also like, he'll intrude with like flashbacks to his own childhood. So like Mm. that sequence where it's like, she doesn't get eaten by eels. Yeah. Like that's a sequence from William Goldman's oh, own nice. childhood. So like, <laughs> so yeah, you've got multiple frames and or multiple narratives all going on at the same time. And it's really interesting how William Goldman essentially makes himself a character in his own novel. Like, mm. like he does it so well, you could be fooled into thinking that this is almost nonfiction, but like there's little diversions. Like in the book, he mentions having a psychiatrist named Helen for a wife and a son Whereas in real life, he had two daughters, oh. and I don't know what his actual wife did, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, no, if we can just talk about William Goldman for a minute. He's one of my favorite writers, and he has a very deceptively simple writing style that really just pulls you along. The way he characterizes himself is very like neurotic and self-hating, mm-hmm. which I think turns a lot of readers off. But as someone who is neurotic and self-hating, I felt very seen. <laughs> 
Would you recommend that this book to somebody? Like, would you recommend the book as openly as you would recommend the film? I hate to be one of those guys, but I do think the book is better. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's impressive. I've never actually read The Princess Bride, obviously. It's amazing and like... It's very, very close to the movie. I mean, naturally, because the screenplay and the book were written by the same guy. Yeah. But, like, the book has more, like, for instance, um, like, actually, it's funny. You said early, well, you didn't actually say this earlier, but it's funny. Um, the book actually goes into more detailed flashbacks showing Inigo's backstory as well as Fezzik's backstory. Like, if you like the Princess Bride movie, you should check out the book, because it's all of what you like, just more of it. Ooh, I'm you in. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, um, they really, the book in particular, I mean, I think Aniga Montoya is a lot of people's favorite character in the movie. Yeah. But he really steals his show in the book. Like, there's a whole flashback about, like, how Count Rugen commissioned his father to make a sword for a six-fingered hand, and how... His father just labored over it for like a whole year just trying to make it perfect so he could finally consider himself an artist Mm -hmm. and not just a craftsman. And then Count Rugen tried to like screw him over on the payment and then killed him. And then Inigo ran away and spent 10 years just completely dedicated to studying the sword. Right. There's a great scene where he goes to see one of his father's friends 10 years after training in the wilderness and he basically says he's like i need you to tell me if i'm ready to fight this guy mm-hmm. so he stands in the courtyard and he just whips the sword around and at the end yeast his father's friend he says like no i'm sorry Inigo, but you're not a master swordsman and he goes like thank you for being honest with me like if you'll excuse me i'm very upset right now and then yeast is like let me finish there's a rank above master called wizard. And when you, your father and I were young men, we saw the last living wizard fight in a tournament. And let me tell you this, you couldn't have beaten him, but he wouldn't have beaten you either. Wow. Yeah. Cool. It's tight. And then it shows like he spends the next 10 years searching for the six fingered man. Can't find him. He ends up falling into a depression and becoming an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And that's when Vizzini finds him. Is that he's right, this- which is it is referenced in the opening scenes of the film where or not the opening scenes, but when they're on the, the boat on their way to not Florin, but what's the other country? Gilder. Gilder, yeah. When they're on, on their way to Gilder to frame Gilder for the kidnapping and murder of Buttercup. Yeah, it's a reference. It's more fleshed out in the book. Like right. after his he gets defeated by the man in black, Inigo wakes up, he can't find Fezzik or Vizzini, so what does he do? goes to a bar and just gets shit-faced yeah like, he's just like <laughs> and it's great how they describe it he's just laying in like a porch somewhere just drinking and like he's like he's drinking to like soothe his anxiety and like boost up his confidence right. after he's been dealt a serious blow yeah you know well and that's actually getting back into the movie i did want to talk about how the dread pirate roberts who ultimately is wesley how he outclasses each of the captors in really fun and interesting ways. Yeah, really. And and actually, this speaks to Wesley's upbringing and how he, you know, eventually takes over the role of the Dread Pirate Roberts. And I actually found his that whole backstory and that that allusion to that backstory, especially when he's explaining it to Buttercup. I think that's really fascinating, and it kind of speaks to how Wesley left as a farm boy, as a young like. Almost like 
what Jason and I were saying on the last episode, a very idealistic person, I think. And I, I don't know that it shows that a ton, but like there's this pure love that he has for Buttercup, but we don't really don't see much else beyond that. And then it's how the Dread Pirate Roberts teaches him how to be a leader and teaches him all of these like really, really practical skills and how to think like a leader and how to command himself and then but also trains him to be like a swordsman and mm-hmm. and all of the, this stuff and like this really builds wesley up to a very very fascinating character at the point in time where we meet him in the current time of the princess bride you know what as much as i love this movie i do have a couple gripes with it uh-huh and one of them is and again because this movie is so silly, it doesn't really bother me. Right. Like, if this was a more serious, gritty drama, I'd be, like, rolling my eyes. But it is a little ridiculous to me that Wesley is a better sword fighter than Inigo Montoya. He's stronger than Fezzik, and he's smarter than Vizzini. Right. Like, he's a little... Like, you're familiar with the term Mary Sue, right? Yeah. That's just a character who's too perfect or too overpowered. My thought on all of that is that I just think that Wesley is a very resourceful character. He's sure. like the wolf in the pulp fiction. Like right. he's just a he's just a person who knows how to solve problems. Mm. And so it's his resourcefulness that is what is what makes him really effective at what he does and it makes him have like all of these jack of all these traits. Mm-hmm. And actually Oh, doing my research, I actually read something that I've never actually thought about before that kind of blew my mind. And it's how Wesley, so during the greatest sword fight, Wesley and Inigo start their fight left both left-handed. Right. And I always wondered, why did Wesley start the fight left-handed? Because, mm. you know, at one point Inigo says, you know, like, I've got to, I've got to share something with you. I've been fighting with my left hand, but I'm actually right-handed. And then right. Wesley says, well, I've shared something with you as well. Yeah. I'm not left-handed either. Yeah. In the book, they, if I can just speak more to the book, yeah, they do a good job of that in the book too, where it talks about how because Inigo is so good, he started getting bored by sword fighting. Right. So switching to his left is a way to just make things more exciting for him. Right. Right? Yeah. And so with this, it's like very small cues in the film that I didn't actually notice or pick up on. But Inigo wears his scabbard where he holds his sword on his left hip, which means he would draw it with his right. Right. So he also, when he gestures in the film, he's gesturing with his right hand. Okay. So all of these would tip Wesley off. And again, this is where Wesley having those like strong intuition problem solving skills would have noticed that and gone, this is a left a right-handed person who is deceiving me with trying to fight left-handed, I am also going to do that. Mm. Um, Okay, interesting. I didn't think about it like that. Yeah. He also, at at points in times, like if you pay really close attention, Wesley, leading up to the sword fight, uses his left hand to throw Inigo off the scent. Like, he's outsmarting Inigo in, in these moments. Like, he's just taking all of these thoughts into consideration and analyzing everything. It's a really, it's a really cool idea. It's a really cool persona that I, I found really fascinating. It's the same thing when he's fighting uh, Fezzik. Like, you know, Fezzik throws the big rock at him, and they're kind of back and forth about him being like, well, I think we should fight Braun versus Braun because clearly you beat the best swordsman. Like, I'm not going to be able to stand up to a regular fight against you. And if you want to, 
like fight like this, I'm just going to kill you with a, a nuke of a rock at your skull, basically. You'd be dead right. already. That's There's that great scene where he's like, let's fight barehanded, and Wesley's just like, I think you have a slight advantage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, again, he figures out how to best him just by being smaller and more agile. Now, uh, lie still and dream of large women. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Love that quote. Mm. And then, finally, when he gets to Vizzini... By the way, one more thing. In the book, Fezzik is Turkish. Okay. He's Turkish. He wears a fez and he has a mustache and everything. Nice. He's Turkish. Yeah, whereas Andre the Giant is French. Very French. Yeah. Yeah, apparently he learned all his lines phonetically. Yeah. Like, he didn't speak a lick of English. Nope. And so when Vizzini, when he gets to Vizzini, I I thought that on this watch, again, I was hyper-paying attention to the film. You're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. <laughs> well, Wallace Shawn does it really well, and, and this speaks to how he was portraying this. Like, he was actually nervous the whole time that they were making this film because he found out the role should have actually gone to Danny DeVito. And by, <laughs> by luck, he ended up getting the role instead. So he was nervous the whole time. So even Carrie Ells has mentioned how that nervous energy he had just was because he was afraid of getting fired the whole time, afraid he wasn't the right person for the role. Like he was just generally nervous and sweaty the whole time that they were filming. And I thought in the scene where they have the battle of wits that Wallace Shawn actually does a really good job of making the character seem like overconfident in himself but there's also like Wesley again is able to pick up on on these little details that this conceited man who who just thinks that he has like all the answers figured out is not going to ask questions because he's just going to make assumptions and whether those assumptions are wrong or not are very important to how Wesley ends up besting him. Can we can I also just say that like that scene is so satisfying cuz like we've all met a prick like that. Yeah. Someone who thinks they're way smarter than they actually are and yeah. it's all so satisfying watching him get taken down. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's such an interesting way to do it as well. Like it I don't know I don't know if there's any other film that I can think of where both cups are poisoned and the main character has an immunity to it. Yeah, and that's such a simple, effective way of resolving it. He's like, I've yeah. uh, I've spent two years building up uh, immunity to Iocane powder. Yeah. By the way, um, I think the sword fight is the greatest scene in the movie, but that scene is the second best scene in the movie. Yeah. You know, so, like just the lines like, you ever heard of Plato or Aristotle? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Morons. <laughs> <laughs> I love that quote. Yeah. I laugh so hard every time yeah. he says that because, like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, what is that? just saying, I'm smarter than Plato and Aristotle. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. Yeah, really. <laughs> Tru- I... Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Ooh, love it. Lo- yeah, uh, when when they're going, when he's like yelling at him back and forth, yeah. he's just buying time. Like that's 100. percent It. He has no idea. Right. He has no idea right. which cup is which. Oh, what's that famous line where it's like? Two things are certain. One, never start a land war in Asia. And two, never go against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> death is on the line. And then he just dies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Collapses. And I just love that line, too. Like, you're trying to kidnap what I've rightfully stolen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, so as this is all going on, this is when Humperdinck is starting to come into play, right? And we start to figure out who the character of Humperdinck is. And... His and this isn't his introduction, like there's a little bit earlier on, but this is really where we start to learn who Humperdinck is. And this is where kind of again I locked on to 
the portrayal of Humperdinck in this film because it's actually when he's doing the man tracking part when af- right after Wesley and Buttercup have fallen well, we'll talk about that scene after I think but it's right in this moment where I was like oh man Humperdinck's a really good villain because he comes off as like capable but very arrogant he's essentially surrounded by yes men right like he's the prince of Florin and you know nobody in his life has ever told him no or you're wrong or or this kind of thing (laughs) and so i think he's a very capable guy but up until this point everybody's also kind of just like feeding him like yeah you're great kind of thing right and get also getting the best training available so he says something while they're tracking and i I, there's kind of two interpretations to it i can't remember exactly what he says but i and he kind of says something that is like okay well we're gonna go here because this is how like this is what's happened here yeah and and that and it's like well a that's kind of obvious um what he says even though like everyone's like oh yeah like yeah, you're so yeah, smart yeah, kind yeah, of thing yeah, yeah. It, it's very obvious but also b the other interpretation of it which which we find out later is that he had staged the whole thing anyway right 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 he's essentially paid these goons to kidnap and kill buttercup it didn't make it look like Gilder did it. Yeah. So he can start a war against them. Yeah. I think that's a little bit more fleshed out in the novel as well, the the feud between Florin and Gilder. Can I actually say, do you want to know how Prince Humperdinck is introduced in the novel? Yes, I would love to. So in the novel, there's all this stuff in in the movie and the novel about what a great hunter Prince Humperdinck is. Right. In the novel, he has this whole, like, underground labyrinth full of exotic animals that he can hunt at his leisure it's called the zoo of death oh my god (laughs) yeah and you want to know how we first meet prince humperdinck in chapter two Hmm? he is strangling an orangutan with his bare hands oh my god (laughs) yeah no 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 he's like wrestling an orangutan with his bare hands and he shatters its spine that's so comically evil i know right and then like it's funny because count rugen comes in he's like Hey, I have the report from the Miracle Man about your father's health. And he's wrestling this rank tank. He's like, oh, not right now. I'm busy. And then Count Rugen's <laughs> like, no, you really need to come take a look at this. He's like, oh, fine. Jeez. Murders this orangutan. And then he finds out that his father's dying. So he needs to take a bride. And it's, huh. yeah, it's funny. Um, In the movie, he's played by Chris Randon, who's like, you know, a handsome, dashing man. Right. But like in the book, he's this big brutish man. Mm. Like this big hulking brutish man with no neck. Right. So like okay. he's way more terrifying in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I just I really like this portrayal because it kind of like he's portraying almost like the rich entitled man basically, right? Who yeah. who's never really had to work hard or like earn his his way his place in the world. And I think what's really fascinating is we get to see that all kind of come undone through as the film goes on. Like he becomes more and more unhinged. And the reason why he becomes more and more unhinged is not because he thinks he's going to lose. It's because things aren't going his way. He's not in control. He realizes that like, he is not the person who can control every faucet of every, everybody's life around him. And, and that's a really fascinating thing to just watch play out yeah it's kind of like the classic villain thing is that so much confidence and swagger until things stop going their way and then they panic yeah and and but i i I thought it was done 
on on such a deep level that this is like the first time in those 30 40 watches that i've really paid attention to it and really like appreciated how deep the storytelling is there Mm. that chris sarandon understood the character so well that he understood like okay like i'm portraying this like inward confidence and as the film goes on a lot of that's going to be shattered right yeah so i don't know it was just something i really appreciated on this watch that i, I, I did wanted to highlight. kind of like how they defeated him at the end too like wesley is still like like he's still suffering from the effects of being mostly dead <laughs> so he can't even really get out of bed but he basically just intimidates Prince Humperdinck into surrendering. Yeah, and that's early on in the film, that's something that Prince Humperdinck would never, ever have considered. But he just becomes so undone as as we watch the film play out that it it, it does become possible that that he would give up like in that sense yeah and like even wesley says some like one of the coldest lines i've ever heard a hero say where he's like let's not kill him because he has to now live the rest of his life knowing he's a coward right i was like wow (laughs) yeah yeah and well and that's that's the thing like that that if you think about everything leading up to that scene that is why it's such an effective way to enact justice on him Mm -hmm. essentially because like i said he was so confident in himself he was so assured of himself the course of the movie just shatters that like i don't know i don't know what humperdinck does subsequent to the story but i can't imagine he effectively leads the country of florin ever again you know what i did notice on this movie that i actually found very charming i just like the idea that humperdinck and count rugen are actually friends like, yeah they're actually it's just two villains who really like each other you yeah. know it's kind of funny He's well like, and i always thought of like count rugen as maybe his like sword master is kind of his trainer and and mentor a little bit as kinda. well there's that age gap there yeah, yeah. exactly i don't know I, it just all of it is just very good storytelling in my opinion yeah agreed rewinding a lot okay uh, <laughs> going back to the scene where Wesley is revealed to be the Dread Pirate Roberts. This is one of those like dripping with romance scenes. Like and and this is kind of a, a reminder of how pure of a romance and how good this film works as a romance as well. Because there's the scene where Buttercup is just accusing Wesley of or accusing who she thinks is the dread pirate roberts of killing, killing wesley, wesley yeah and and explain and wesley explaining oh i kind of remember him but and wesley up until this point thinks that buttercup has betrayed him as well right 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 that's and, the conflict it doesn't last long but that's the conflict yeah and it, but it's it's pretty effective like and and you're you're kind of invested in like what's happening at this point in time between the two of them like again there's just so much chemistry between carrie ells and robin wright mm. and and that actually is partially because they were completely infatuated with each other yeah, throughout the filming of this. that's what I read. And that actually, I think, in a lot of other films, doesn't actually work. And I know that directors have talked about that in the past, where if your actors have off-screen romance and chemistry, that often it has the opposite effect in, in a film. But really? In, in this unique case, the amount of chemistry that those two had, like, at all times, they're both just like crazy about each other yeah Yeah. like you can you can really feel it come through the screen Mm. one of the other things the book did really well is the first chapter is all from buttercup's perspective and it talks about you know her life on the farm with her parents and like you know realizing that she's the most beautiful woman in the world and then also realizing that she's in love with the farm boy and like right that he's in love with her and then like when she finds out he's been killed and how like 
devastated she was like it's only like a couple minutes in the movie but it's the whole first chapter in the book Mm -hmm. and it's actually you know what i do have one other major gripe about this movie that i really need to lean into okay as much as i like this movie i don't really like what they did with buttercup well but that's coming from somebody who hasn't I guess, like, who who has read the book, right? No, I just mean in the context of the movie. Like, she's very damsel in distress, very, like... Yeah. She doesn't have a lot of agency, and she doesn't really do a whole lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's that scene in the fire swamp where they're being attacked by R.O.U.S.s, and she picks up a club, and I'm like, oh my god, she's finally gonna do something. And then she, like, immediately trips and falls, and I'm like, (laughs) come on, Buttercup, like... Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. And maybe that's kind of emblematic of the times, or, like... Yeah. This movie is, it's a callback to, like, fairy tales and, like, the Errol Flynn swashbuckling adventure movies, and that's maybe just how women were characterized back then. Right. But, like, I would have really liked for her to have done more yeah that's honestly that's like fair critique especially in 2023 i think as well well as as we've matured as as moviegoers and also content creators yeah well it's just we expect more from our female characters nowadays right and like i think they do a little bit of a better job with it in the book like in the book she just has a lot more personality too Mm. like it's Mm -hmm. funny there's a scene in the first chapter when she realizes that like none of the other girls in the village will talk to her. She calls up to one of them. She's like, why are you guys all mad at me? And it turns out all the village, all the girls in the village hate her because all the boys in the village have fallen in love with her. Uh, yeah. And she just has this scene where she's like, boys, like useless bird banged noodle noggin boys. Like what would I even do with boys? Like all they do is get in the way. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's probably my biggest critique of this movie is that I would have liked more from buttercup or just for them to have just given her more to do i think that she probably could have been more of a foil to humperdink in like the later part of the film as well right like she she's often like complaining to him she has some moments where she stands up to him but like i would have liked just more you know like for instance that scene with the rous's how hard would it have been for her to just bonk one on the head with a log? I've been like, great, you helped. You yeah. contributed. Right. The rats of unusual size, just in case anyone doesn't... Rodents yeah. of unusual <laughs> size. size. Yeah, yeah. 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 So. We actually had one of those, as a side note. My, we gave that to my grandpa once uh, for Christmas, the rodent of unusual size. You could like buy those. Oh, like was it like a stuffed animal? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I want one now. <laughs> apparently, and I don't know if this is true, but apparently... um. There was like a little person. Yeah, in that, that was true. And yeah. I think there's a story about how the first day they were supposed to shoot the R.O.U.S. scene, um, one of the actors got drunk and was in the drunk tank, so they had to delay filming to bail him out of jail. Yeah, yeah, because the cop didn't actually believe him that he, <laughs> he was, was an actor. That he was an actor. <laughs> yeah, and they really needed him. Um, that's so funny. That's a, as a side note. That's actually something that is an unfortunate downside to hollywood and and the rise of vfx and cgi is that there's a lot of little people that got a lot of work in hollywood pre-cgi and that's kind of gone by the wayside unfortunately like yeah little people are very important to the history of cinema oh yeah absolutely i mean yeah now we if this movie were made today it'd just be like you know it'd just be a vfx yeah and also i i really like practical effects i i think that especially in a film like this they just serve the viewer a lot better than they just age better too 
Yeah. Yeah. They really do. I mean, when they're done as well as they are, like in this film. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about the the revenge plot a little bit. Yeah, actually, I like. I'm surprised we haven't gotten there yet because Inigo was my personal favorite character. Yeah, I think he has the best. I actually like one of the things that I found interesting in my this latest rewatch is like I almost feel like this is his movie. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's a thread of a plot that just it carries us throughout the film and. Again, because there's so much going on in this movie, you mm-hmm. and you can connect to so many different characters and so many different threads of the plot that if you're interested in a good revenge plot, like this is one of the best revenge plot films in film ever. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. What a, And what a great quote as well. I'm surprised it's actually taken us that long to get there. Yeah. Right? I almost said it at one point, and then I think you carried on, and I was I like, ah, it's not the right time. You. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and how great is that final scene between uh, Inigo Matoya and Christopher Guest? Yeah. And actually, the scene when... So Inigo's bleeding, and he's up against the wall, and he starts trying to get up, and Christopher Guest, Count Rugen, just says... You seem to have an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. That was like one of the chillest lines ever. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that it's really effective. And again, I said this to Jess while I was watching. I was like, we don't have enough of these like revenge subplots anymore. Like they're really effective. And I don't know, It's there's an emotional attachment that you get to those. Like you really want to see the characters succeed and because they've been kicked around. Like they're the underdog kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Again, the closest thing that I had as a comparison of big like example of recency with this is the original Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Like Jack Sparrow is kind of on his side quest revenge plot, right? Throughout the movie. And it kind of carries the film a little bit. Like Yeah. Well, I mean, that one ends with him killing I mean Barbosa's the main villain of the movie. Yeah, but for various reasons too, right? And but like Johnny Depp playing Jack Sparrow is kind of carrying the movie. Sure is. And so it's, again, Inigo Montoya is also does do a lot of heavy lifting in this film. I feel like especially in the second half of the movie, he becomes very much the most interesting character. Yeah. Yeah. I had some... I love the scene with Miracle Max where he's trying to get him, convince him to like resurrect Wesley. And he's like, his wife is... Well, he he's like, he needs like a noble reason. Right. And he's like... His wife is crippled and his children are starving. And Miracle Max is like, boy, are you a rotten liar. He's like, I need his help to avenge my father who's been dead for 20 years. And he's just like, I liked your first story. (laughs) (laughs) Billy Crystal. So they just like let Billy Crystal cook in this scene. Like Rob Reiner and Carrie Ells actually both had to leave the shoot because they were laughing too hard in the film. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They actually used a uh, Carrie Ells like body. Like a body double? Not even a body double, but just like a whatever the what's it called like the mannequin of him oh Um, basically like they use that on on there the table because he kept laughing every time like billy crystal had his one-liners oh come on to be fair there were some brilliant one-liners he's like yeah he's not dead he's only mostly dead (laughs) which is almost alive (laughs) it's close to almost alive Uh, yeah yeah (laughs) not saying to love he's true love he's saying to blave (laughs) (laughs) nice mlt yeah 
Oh, a little mutton lettuce tomato when the mutton is just so ripe. I love that. <laughs> and just the way the scene ends, like, goodbye, boys. Have fun storming the castle. <laughs> Do you think they have a chance? It would take, take a, miracle. a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the funniest scenes. It's one of the, like, Billy Crystal is unrecognizable in the character because of like how great the all that makeup yeah Yeah. the makeup design is is incredible the woman in that scene as well is his wife valerie his wife valerie uh is played by carol kane too and so she's also like a younger person like heavily makeuped in in this role (laughs) yeah she's she's great as well no i just love um like he opens the door He's like, go away or I'll call the Brute Squad. And Fezzik's like, I'm on the Brute Squad. He's, He's like, like, you are the, the Brute, Brute Squad. squad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and also just the fact that he's not helping them because they have a noble goal. He's just doing it to spite Prince Humperdinck. Because, That's a noble goal. Yeah, because Prince Humperdinck fired him. <laughs> ah, another little bit of revenge in here. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm not the witch, I'm your wife. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you've never had it so good. <laughs> Humperdinck, 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 and she's chasing around the table. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we, we talk sequels, prequels, and reboots a little bit. The book came out in 1973. You've talked a little bit about big discrepancies that you have. Is there any like other big differences between the novel and book? Uh, there's one that I thought was pretty cool. So during the big final battle between Inigo and Count Rugen, you know, there's that great line where Inigo has defeated him, and he's like beg me not to end your life like promise me riches he's like tell me you'll give me anything i want mm-hmm. he's like everything i have and more and then he goes that great line he's like i want my father back you son of a bitch and then he stabs him through the heart yeah with the... so this is in the book and i'm not making this up he doesn't stab him through the heart he takes his sword and cuts his heart out what? rips it out of his chest jesus yeah but Count Rugen dies of fright before he can rip his heart out of his chest. That's wild. Yeah, I know. Right? When I read that, I was like, what? Oh, jeez. So, um, honestly, the novel follows the plot of the book pretty well. Oh, there's one funny thing, though. Um, the reunion scene between Wesley and Buttercup, it's not in the book. And it's funny. It becomes a joke that it's not in the book. William Goldman says that S. Morgenstern just never wrote the scene. And then... <laughs> He said he wrote his own version of the scene, but his editor didn't think he should include it to be like a faithful abridgment. So he said, here's my publisher's address if you want the scene. Wow, that's <laughs> it's hilarious. Just, it's so, and like... So so you mean like the part where Wesley's explaining like how he became the, like... No, that that part is still in the book. I just mean like when they're like rolling down the hill together and they oh, have their big reunion right. where they're like kissing and stuff. Yeah. It's not in the book. Huh. And it's in, like it's intentionally not in the book. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's a joke. I like it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so other than that, yeah, it follows things pretty closely. There's also great scenes of so the machine of pain is at the bottom of the zoo of death. So Inigo and Fezzik have to fight their way through the zoo of death, through all the multiple levels to grab his body and get out of there. Now, honestly, like, yeah, like I said, like, if you like the movie, the book is just more of it. Yeah. So I'd highly recommend it. Yeah. The other part, I guess, that I did want to discuss is the basis of the Dread Pirate Roberts. He's actually based on a real pirate called Bartholomew Roberts also known as Black Bart, considered one of the most successful pirates of all time. Wow. He took over 470 prize ships during his time as a pirate, 
considered one of like again the most successful pirates of all time in the Americas, West Africa. And he was actually the one who created the pirate code. Oh, like the parlay thing? The whole, no, the whole thing about like what it is to be a pirate, like how, how bounty or the prize is split up, like, um, how, how like people are considered equal. Like there's a whole democratic system to piracy. I did not know that. And he created all of it. Yeah. The read the pirate code sometime. It's fascinating. Wow. So he was an innovator. Yeah. And he was the one who also came up with the skull and crossbones flag or one of the original like adapters of it huh good for him yeah really interesting character in history i highly recommend checking it out because it's he's just a fascinating person good night wesley i'll probably kill you tomorrow yeah (laughs) (laughs) just i honestly as a side note i really love that they included that all in there because it shows like such an ingenuity to the idea of the dread pirate roberts and and how this like idea of a person can be passed down and like yeah and the creation of this role and this leadership role and and how maybe there was that kernel in that and wesley that that version of dread pirate the dread pirate roberts saw in him and then decided to foster that and and grow wesley into like you know a fully formed human yeah, then at the end when Inigo's like, I've been spent my whole life trying to get revenge from my father. I don't know what to do now. And Wesley says, well, have you thought about piracy? Like, Yeah, it's yeah. a really good way to end the character off too. Like, yeah. it, it comes kind of full circle, right? Mm-hmm. I, I always I was thinking about that earlier actually. I wonder if like Fezzik went on the ship with him as well and, and became like one of his second in command kind of guy. I yeah. That's the other thing, is like how Fezzik and Inigo are like genuinely good friends. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when Inigo is like drunk in the village and the brood squad is shaking right down and he runs into Fezzik, he looks so happy to see him. Right. He's like, Fezzik. <laughs> and he's clearly, and then Fezzik has to sober him up. So he's just dunking him and like, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah, he's like, ah. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, yeah. Effects and filming. I think that you could probably write an entire novel about the making of this movie and there are so many documentaries and like discussions about the film and all of the actors have like gone in detail. Honestly, there's several Andre the Giant documentaries and I think every single one of them includes discussions of this movie in there because the movie is really important to Andre the Giant's legacy and his life as well. Like yeah. he, he really had a lot of fun making this movie. He almost didn't get to make it. Like the original time that they tried to make it, he was considered to be Fezzik in the 70s and they couldn't get him because at that point in time he was like an up and coming WWF or WWE wrestler and they just couldn't get him to schedule in. Mm. And so there was a point in time where Arnold Schwarzenegger almost got the role. Wow. And Liam Neeson famously like almost tried to get the role as well, auditioned for it. And they were they were upset because he auditioned for it and they were like, bah, he's only six four. Like we would never <laughs> get out of here. He's yeah. not tall enough. Yeah. I feel like though for a character like Fezzik, you need a giant. Yeah. You a need literal like giant. a seven foot tall behemoth. Yeah. And Andre the Giant is that guy. He is freaking huge. He's gigantic. And I think actually the movie almost doesn't represent how big he is. Like, he is super massive. 
He's yeah, like actually, one... I don't know that the movie does a good job with scale. In that no, sense. I I think that he's actually bigger than he looks in the film. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Like I said, he he absolutely loved this. Like he would he would watch this movie over and over again. He'd show it to all his wrestler friends. Like I remember reading a story about how he called Hulk Hogan up and was like watching this movie and laughing and being like, "Have you seen me? Like I'm incredible." Kind of thing. <laughs> um, good for him. Yeah. And part of the reason also why he loved it was because he felt like an equal on on set because his whole life you know being this massive human being like he was always getting stares and and people like considering him kind of a sideshow kind of thing and like this was like one of the first times that he just got to be a regular person on set and everybody's an actor he's yeah. a fellow actor yeah. yeah 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 and and he like also became good friends with a lot of the cast like carrie ellis has a lot of fond things to say about him so yeah i i think that that part of the film is, is really genuine, really, really cool. I just love, like, just throw a rock at the back of his head. Well, that's not very sportsmanlike. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's like, well, he's like, well, what is my way? Like, yeah. He's like, do it your way. Oh, okay. Well, what is my way? What is my way? Yeah. We talked about how Carrie Ellis and Robin Wright were both just, like, completely infatuated with each other. Carrie Ellis said he couldn't concentrate on anything after his first encounter with Robin. Like, that's how, how much he was just, like, instantly charmed by her like i said they're two of the most beautiful human beings in the 80s on set together yep that'll do it yeah they actually like didn't want to stop filming this movie in the final the final scene of the film like their final shared scene together was the horseback kiss and they kept requesting to do more takes of it because oh they didn't my want god it time. that's how yeah. much they were into each other oh, during Jesus the filming Christ. of this yeah yeah that's pretty funny i also love when the grandfather closes the book and he's like, well, it's the kissing part. You don't want to hear that. And he's yeah. like, I don't really mind so much. And then we cut back. And yeah. it's like, there have been five kisses in the world that were considered the greatest. This one knocked them all out of the park. Yeah. And again, this is like one of the best romance films ever made. And that's another pitch to to who should watch this film is, is you know, couples are going to really have a lot of fun Actually, with this. Actually, I have a thing. So I was, let me just pull something up really quick. Sure. Okay, so this, I have right here a quote from the book. This is when... Wesley and Buttercup have confessed their feelings to each other. So this is a direct quote from Wesley from the book. I have stayed these years in my hovel because of you. I have taught myself languages because of you. I have made my body strong because I thought you might be pleased by a strong body. I have lived my life with only the prayer that some sudden dawn you might glance in my direction. I have not mom- a moment in years when the sight of you did not send my heart careening against my ribcage. I have not known a night when your visage did not accompany me to sleep. There has not been a moment. There has not been a morning when you did not flutter behind my waking eyelids. Nice. Yeah, I sent that to Emily a couple weeks ago. <laughs> you did, you romantic. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> Let that be a lesson, fellas. <laughs> the greatest sword fight in modern times. Yep. So... This is a scene that was extremely important to the film and extremely important to Rob Reiner to get right as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he actually hired Peter Diamond and Bob Anderson to train Carrie Ells and Mandy Packin. They both had like been Olympic-level uh, sword fighters. They actually helped do the effects in Star Wars, the original Star Wars films. Oh, they, tight. They the ones, yeah, uh, who set that up. Raiders of the Lost Ark, they were on set doing some contracting or or counseling for that 
and the Lord of the Rings, like uh, James Bond films, like they've been. So they're the sword of, fight guys. Yeah, if they're you need like, a sword fight. They're there. Yeah, exactly. So basically, like they spent three weeks training them, and then every time, like Cariels and Mandy had time to practice, like any spare time they had they were just sword fighting the whole time nice so they showed rob reiner like their sword fight and he was actually underwhelmed at first and was like i want that i want more because they only had about a minute of sword fighting uh set up for the the scene and so they ended up uh working on it and getting three full minutes of sword fight in bob anderson this is a really cool story he learned to fence by a akos moldovani um who is a famous Fencer, like one of the most famous sword fighters of all time, he was actually the last man in Europe to preside a saber duel. Wow, a yeah. saber duel, a saber duel. Wow. So kind of neat, kind of cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and like the whole fight is actually Carrie Ells and Mandy Patkin. The whole fight was those two. Like the, like there's no stunt doubles except for the flips. That's yeah, the there only were time. Quite a few elaborate flips. Well, only at the end, really. Like Kinda. the two flips. But that's the only two. If you want to know what the most influential film is for this scene, the one that that they were trying to almost recreate and better is the film, the 1952 film Scaramouche has huh. a sword fight in it that previously was considered also one of the greatest sword fight scenes of all time. So that's what they were trying to achieve with this scene. So yeah, go back and check that one out. You seem a decent fellow. I hate to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> you seem a decent fellow. I hate to die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's, that's the whole scene is so charming. Just how they're like, they're talking to each other and he's like, Wesley is climbing the cliffs of insanity and he's like he's so giddy I love it yeah, I love how he's giddy just, he's just so excited to fight him and he's just like I could throw you down a rope but I don't think you would trust me because I'm just waiting up here to kill you and he's like that does put a damper in our relationship yeah. yes and he's like what if I gave you my honor as a Spaniard he's like no good I've known too many Spaniards yeah <laughs> yeah that's a that's a really funny scene yeah but it's just like he's like you're just gonna have to wait patiently for me to climb these rocks and he's just like I hate waiting mm-hmm. Count Rugen, when he hits Wesley over the head to knock him out, Carrie Ells told Christopher Guest to hit him as hard as he could, for real, and so he hit him so hard that he knocked him unconscious and lacerated the top of his head and sent him to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> they had to shut down production for a day. Ouch. Didn't he get a concussion from that? Yeah. Yeah, but he was okay. Yeah. I mean, as okay as you can be after a concussion. Yeah. Manny Pat- Patkin had like a lot of personal stakes that he brought into the role of Inigo as well like his father passed away 10 years earlier or 15 years earlier of cancer and so he thought of like the six-fingered man as as a metaphor for cancer basically yeah I I don't know I thought that was that is pretty yeah I read that too yeah I don't know it's it's a really as someone with a dead dad (laughs) it does that does hit differently when you've lost someone yeah I I believe that Apparently, Mandy Patkin bruised a rib because he was laughing so hard at Billy Crystal. That is, you know, it's next level. When you're so funny that you're actually physically injuring people, that's some next level shit. Yeah, this is my pitch to go back and check out When Harry Met Sally because it's genuinely one of the funniest romance movies ever made. I think I still need to check that out. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Yeah, you guys are going to have to watch it sometime. Yeah, we probably will. It's like, like I said, it's legitimately one of the funniest movies ever made. Okay. Romance movies. Okay. Well, it's me and Emily's anniversary this weekend. Maybe we'll check it out. Do it. Do it. Do it. So Andre the Giant, 
on set called Everybody Boss. And <laughs> the reason why he did that is because he basically liked to defer to people that he liked. And it was kind of like a way to counteract the fact that, you know, he was this massive human being. Like he was basically trying to, you know, trying to. It must be hard being that tall and being that huge, right? Yeah. Because like people must treat you a little differently. Yeah, definitely. And so trying to show them like that kind of like i'm cool yeah it's like a courtesy kind of thing you know yeah like like, i guess if you're seven feet tall you've got to like probably really bend over backwards to show people you're cool right well yeah and that or that you're just not like you're not just your height and yeah also that too so they actually recorded all of his lines like rob reiner uh and andrew scheinman recorded all of his lines like and then andre the giant will listen to them so that he could say them phonetically yeah yeah, because he like like you said he only spoke french i don't know if this is true or not but i guess there's a story about how one day on set he ripped a 16 second fart yeah, yeah. i was gonna get to that yeah story. like 16 <laughs> seconds and then afterwards rob reiner came up to him and said are you okay andre and he just said i am now boss yeah 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 <laughs> um <laughs> It, it was so loud that it shook the plywood on set of the parapet and made the sound engineer take his headphones off. <laughs> Carrie Ellis said he looked over at Andre and saw said that he saw steam rising from his head. <laughs> yeah, and I, then and then the hey Andre, are you okay? And he said, I am now, boss. <laughs> That's so amazing. Funny. So Andre the Giant, like at this point in time, he was really struggling with back problems, and he struggled with those throughout his whole life, and that's actually what ended up killing yeah, it's, him. It's actually not healthy to be that big yeah your body almost can't take it and so all of the scenes where he's lifting people or carrying people there's actually like special effects in there like people were on wires or in cariel's circumstance where he's kind of got his back like cariel's is actually standing on something the whole time and they're just the way that they're framing it is so you can't see it because he couldn't have taken that kind of weight at that point in time no no that's sad yeah it is really sad um so he was a big guy but he was kind of fragile at the same time yep yeah so andre the giant had to use like an atv to get him from shooting locations all the time and so for whatever reason he always wanted carrie ells to be the one to drive him around (laughs) um so carrie ells eventually did it but on the first time he did they hit like a patch of rocks while he was shifting gears and he got his foot caught in the pedal and between the pedal and a rock and actually broke his big toe ouch so this is something that i i actually hadn't didn't know this before we started to do my research they had to shoot around that and and with his swollen toe and foot basically right before he gets pushed down the hill by buttercup he sits down with his leg extended and that's because he can't sit properly at that point in time because of his foot and if you watch him in the fire swamp he's kind of walking funny he kind of has a bit of a hop and that's because his toe's broken Huh, and what a trooper. What a true professional. He yeah. still showed up to work. Yeah. Gave yeah. a good performance. Yeah, exactly. The Dread Pirate Roberts costume, obviously a uh, reference to Zorro. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Just want to put that out there. Make sure that that is clearly a reference. And I think that's all the effect, special effects that I wanted to talk about. Like, we've kind of really discussed a lot of the effects in filming that I, that I wanted to touch on already. So Yeah. So let's talk the score and the soundtrack of this film. I just want to start by saying as a side note that the rodents of unusual sizes are voiced by Rob Reiner. <laughs> he was making all those noises. Good for him. Mark Knopfler is the guy who composed it. He was a member of the British rock band, The Dire Straits. 
I think that the score is actually really, really good. Like maybe even slightly underrated. Yeah. It's not like something that people bring up, but I think it's really effective as as background music for the film. Like and and also pulling the emotions out of you in certain scenes. Like not that the characters themselves and the actors do a fantastic job of that, but I think that. I think that low key the score is is somewhat underrated in this film. See, I okay once as per usual, I did not notice the score mm-hmm. except during the fight, the sword fight. Yeah, because that's when the score really like it really accentuates what's going on. Right, it's a little silly, but yep. like it 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 helps. Actually, the song "Storybook Love" is the end credit song, and that was nominated for an Academy Award. Huh? Yeah, best original song. Okay, I was listening to that earlier. Pretty good tune. Pretty good tune. Yeah. I do like the credits for this movie where it's like the credits for like a like a sitcom or like actually it's just very 80s credits where they show like footage of right. the actors and they show yeah. the, like the actor's name under that. Yep. Yeah. I'm like, all right. Charming. All of this is charming. Very charming. Charming is a good way of putting this movie. Yeah. Very charming. So look back at the times and legacy. Modestly successful at the box office, but like you said, it became a massive cult classic and eventually just a pure classic at this point after it was released on home media i own the dvd of this at some point i'll probably get the blu-ray of this i'd like to build maybe a little bit of a blu-ray collection at some point yeah let's get let's start a blu-ray thing yeah subscribe to our patreon we can (laughs) can buy more (laughs) blu-rays well you know like i said on this podcast before i do want to eventually build a nice home theater but anyway, the legacy, like, I have an opinion about this film. And Go on. And I actually, there's a Reddit post earlier on the last couple of weeks where somebody was talking about films that parody the genre, like, super well. And so I think that The Princess Bride parodies the fantasy genre so effectively that it kind of ruined the fantasy genre for, like, 10, 15 years until Lord of the Rings came out. I don't know it's so much fantasy so much as like the whole fairy tale vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Like this was almost Shrek before Shrek. Yeah, exactly. You know? So, but yeah, it's another one of those things where, again, and I've said this before on this podcast, like kids, if you're going to parody something, don't do too good a job because you might just break it. Yeah, for sure. And so I think that like, there's maybe a couple films between Lord of the Rings and this that came out that were good in the fantasy genre, but like those are the two pedestals, right? And like, yeah. And the Lord of the Rings takes itself very seriously, and that's and that's a good thing. But like, how do you follow up something like this with another film, right? You know, like, like you texted me like a month or six weeks ago saying, "What do you want to do for the fantasy?" And I just said, "Princess Bride, bro." Yeah, <laughs> like, it's the else? obvious one. Yeah, what else are we gonna do? Yeah. And you, so you talked about how this could all have almost been remade in the past and that there was a big outcry about that yeah and so there was the like over covid like the table reading Mm -hmm. version of this i have a proposal for you go on um, about whether or not maybe this could ever be adopted into a miniseries and here's my pitch okay a princess bride miniseries where every episode six to eight episodes every episode is like wildly different in genre tone like almost like not so much an anthology but just like you're playing with the format a lot yeah so like okay. so like the we start off as kind of like you know an intro to this it's a bit of a romance like wesley and buttercup and everything and then maybe we get something on the high seas we get the political intrigue of like you said maybe more of the backstory of 
Humperdinck, and then we get the action part of the sword fight and everything else, like him chasing after them. The swamp would be a horror episode, I think could be pretty interesting, and then like his torturing and everything, and then like adding a comedy episode at some point in there as well. Like you you could probably see just filter the comedy. I don't know that that would work for this story, but I do like the idea of a miniseries where it's it's all one continuing story but like each episode is a different genre. Yeah. I do like that idea. Yeah. I think that's cool. I I think it could work and I think it could work for this in the right hands. But like you said like the the novel kind of keeps up this kind of tone and pace throughout it sounds like. Yeah. So maybe it doesn't quite work for this, but You know what? One like more detail about the novel. Um you know the old king like Humperdinck's yep. dad in the novel, he actually has married a much younger wife, and Prince Humperdinck calls her evil stepmother. Huh. But it turns out she's actually a really nice lady. <laughs> and him and and her and Humperdinck actually get along really well together. He just calls her evil stepmother because, like, in all the stories he read as a kid, the stepmothers were always evil. Oh, nice. So they actually get along very well, and she's not evil. He just calls her evil stepmother. That's really funny. That is really funny. Anyways. Personal reviews and the partner factor. Uh, Justin and I watched this together. We've watched this together multiple times. I've seen this movie, like I said, 30 to 50 times. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. This is like, I would say, the most rewatchable film up there tied with The Big Lebowski for me. It's certainly hard to have a bad time watching this movie. Yeah. It's almost a medical impossibility yeah it's it's just so rich in like details like the narrative structure is just excellent there's so much to discover like every time you watch this movie you can focus on different things and and there's so much to take away from this film like i hope that we did this justice this episode i hope so too but like there's even stuff you know that i've missed talking about or like you know if i watch this another 10 times and then five years we did this like episode again i bet you like the beginning of this episode we would have like a lot of a, a much different discussion i think i think i could listen to multiple discussions of this movie and have different take take different things away from this film every time yeah i i would agree with that and that's maybe why i'm not super worried about not covering everything because i'm sure everything else has been covered at some point in time and like this is a, our unique take on the princess this is Bride. a very this is a very talked about movie yeah exactly yeah, as it should be the other the other thought that i have kind of in in like this being one of our favorites is to me this almost feels like as close as we could get to modern day shakespeare and what I mean by that is like it's this kind of fairy tale like setting that's very comical. I think that a lot of English teachers want to, you know, represent what Shakespeare was like and and why it's so important. And I think that in 500 years that people watching this movie are maybe like historians are going to look at this movie in 500 years or a thousand years and be like, this is a masterpiece. Like this is a true masterpiece and a representation of what storytelling was like in, and this time period. In the eighties. Yeah. And I, I, I hope that people of that time understand the significance of something like this. And again, how it, how it goes back to like something like a Midsummer's Night Dream or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Shakespeare didn't always write tragedies. Yeah. He would wrote stuff like this. Honestly, like, like I said, as somebody who did English courses in high school out of obligation more than anything and had to read like the Shakespearean stuff, like this to me feels like, like what I should have gotten out of Shakespeare. 
Yeah, you know what? If I ever have to teach high school English, I'll show them this movie and be like, this is what Shakespeare is replicating. Yeah. Or no, this movie is replicating Shakespeare. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. All right, let's hear your th- thoughts on the movie. Uh, I really liked it. No, I, I had a really, really, really good time. Yeah, Inigo is my favorite character. He might be one of my all-time favorite characters. Definitely in the list. I would highly encourage everyone to read the book. Yeah, I'm going to check this out. I'm adding this to my Christmas wish list. People are all asking me right now what I want for Christmas and... The Princess Bride. The Princess Bride novel. Yeah, and actually, like, check out more shit by William Goldman, too. Like, he is one of my favorite writers, and I really like the opening of this book where it shows him finding the book for his son and all that stuff. Like, William Goldman, like... I've read a few of his books, and I almost like the introductions to his books more than the books themselves, <laughs> just because, again, he's a very cranky man, and he's a very cranky, neurotic man, and it's just a joy to read sometimes, right? right. It's funny, Um, he wrote this one book in like the 60s or 70s called Boys and Girls Together, and this was like a long, serious, like literary novel. Right. His publisher thought this was going to like put him on the map as the next great writer, it got savaged. Like the critics hated it. It didn't sell very well, et cetera, et cetera. So right. in the introduction of the book, William Goldman talks about that and he's like, and that's when I made up my mind. And that's when I decided, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> Just fuck all of them. Love and it. he talks about how like for the rest of his career, he never read any reviews. Like when he did a movie, when he had a movie come out that did really well, his agent would send him like all these glowing reviews and he would just throw them in the trash. <laughs> just be like, fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I yeah. absolutely love that. What about your old friend? Oh, right. Emily. Think? Emily actually, I thought she said it very well. She's like, this movie is silly, but in the best way. Yeah. In the best yeah. way possible. I agree. In the best way possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. I, I This is a movie that I, I want to share with people and yeah. that, that I, I can't wait to share with like you know, my nieces and nephews and stuff someday, right? I would love to show this to a child. Yeah. If anyone has a child, (laughs) (laughs) subscribe to our Patreon (laughs) and I will come over and show this to your child. Oh God, we're getting arrested for this episode for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I have friends with young children. I could just show it to them. Yeah. Pitch it. I I love this movie and I can't wait to share it with other people. And you know what? I do have vivid memories of this movie being on in like fifth grade. Yeah, as a child. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I remember my, this is one of my aunt's favorite movies. And I remember being a kid and and her babysitting us once and bringing this movie and being like, it's time for you to experience The Princess Bride. And that like, that's a, that's a core childhood memory right there. Yeah. So. Core memory unlocked. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. And. Mm -hmm. Kelvin, if you're still listening, fuck you for not listening to me. Uh, fuck you, Kelvin. <laughs> you you missed out on a great opportunity to watch one of the greats of all time. Does Kelvin listen to this podcast? Um, I don't think so. But okay, well, fuck him anyway. Yeah, fuck you, Kelvin. <laughs> <laughs> fuck, fuck the critics and fuck Kelvin. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for the episode. I think upcoming, Jason and I are doing our holiday episode, Christmas episode next. Uh, we don't have a movie picked for that yet, so if you have any recommendation, as always, throw them in the comments. And then after that, we've got our best of episode. Yeah, it's that time again. Yeah, and I'm really excited to talk about the movies that I have on my list. I think I've almost curated my top five movies, which is a really hard task, honestly. Yeah, I haven't tackled that just yet. I really need to think on it. Yeah. Um, I also just need to, I think I, like, my memory has gotten so bad, as I was telling you earlier, like, I almost need to, like, sit down with, like, a notepad and just write out all the movies That's I what I start with, year. is yeah. writing a list, figuring out what 
qualifies, what doesn't qualify, and then starting to be like, okay, well, this has to be on the list. Right. And then I start with this has to be on the list, and then see how many I have left and how many movies I have left to decide from. And then right. it gets and then it gets difficult. And then it gets granular. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there was like two movies that I was like instantly, this has to be on my list. And then afterwards, I was like, I think this makes my list. This is a movie that when I saw it, I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. Does it still make sense to be on the list? Because we watched a lot, of, a lot of good movies this year. Yeah, I yeah, actually like I was kind of looking through our playlists and like we did again, this has been a good year, but it's been in a very long year. Like Train Spotting and The Godfather feels like 5 years ago. Yeah. Like <laughs> and and I don't imagine The Godfather's eligible for you anymore either, right? I think it is actually. Really? Might, the Godfather might just make the list. You've never you'd only seen it once before? I think I'd only seen it once in its entirety, and that was in film school, like, 12 years ago. So The Godfather may just top my list. Cool. Yeah. And I have no shame in that. (laughs) That's very fair. Yeah. I've watched it twice this year. I showed it to Kelvin and Sam. We watched Cabaret this year, didn't we? Yep. We watched Cabaret. Yeah. Howl's Moving Castle. We'll reflect on all this in the the top five list. This episode's going to go long, so I think this is a good time to wrap up. Okay. Yeah. That being said... We'll see you next time. Tell your dad. Tell your dad. As you wish. (laughs) As you wish.